Hello, everybody, and welcome to your live event. My name is Eric Weinkoop, and I'm the Director of Culinary Instruction uh, here at Ruby, and I'm also one of your chef instructors in the courses. Uh, today, it's my office hours, and so I want to welcome you specifically uh, to this event. Um, I'm happy to uh, see a nice uh, list of questions here. And uh, the first one is from Lee. And the question is, what are the steps to be a chef? Wow, well, that's a, that's a big question. Let me uh, start off by first saying that uh, from my perspective, uh, the, the, the profession of a chef or the, the title that one might receive uh, as a chef is, is a, a professional designation. And so in my opinion, my perspective, uh, there's no such thing as an amateur chef. You're either a chef uh, or you're a good cook. And um, keep in mind also that uh, a chef is, first of all, a cook. And uh, it's, a, it's a person that uh, takes on the managerial responsibilities of an operation. And there are different ranks, uh, different uh, uh, types or capacities of chefs. Um, but fundamentally, it's a, it's a person that uh, it takes on the managerial tasks of, for example, scheduling employees or hiring and firing and uh, coaching and training employees. Uh, there are fiscal responsibilities, uh, keeping an eye on food cost uh, in your operation. Um, is going to be a key responsibility that chefs have an eye on uh, on, a, on a regular and frequent basis and as frequently as, as daily or even multiple times a day, uh, just depending on, you know, how um, finely nuanced, I guess, the, um, the management needs to be or wants to be. And, uh, you know, so in terms of, you know, how do you get there? Uh, there are many paths, and I think if uh, you were to sit down and have a conversation with 10 chefs, you would get 10 different answers. Uh, there are those that have, um, you know, entered the, uh, the professional food uh, industry organically, um, meaning they've just gotten a job. Uh, you know, the, the classic story is that, one gets a, uh, an entry-level job such as a dishwasher and works their way up the hierarchy of the kitchen, uh, making their way to, to prep cook and then uh, to, um, you know, maybe a, a, a station cook uh, before moving up to uh, a, uh, a sous chef, for example. And then, uh, you know, eventually... There are, there are possibly other positions like executive sous chef or executive chef, um, kitchen manager. There are different titles that are used uh, just depending on the organization and the responsibilities of that individual. Okay. Uh, there are uh, uh, folks that take a different path, and that is to go to a culinary school uh, to receive uh, a more structured uh, program of education. And it uh, would then cover a lot of different topics uh, of the food and beverage industry and the hospitality industry within a relatively short period of time. And uh, sometimes there's six or eight months. Uh, and sometimes, uh, you know, you can earn an associate's degree or a bachelor's degree. 
uh, and some people go on to earn uh, 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 graduate degrees, a master's degree or a, a doctoral degree uh, in uh, an allied area, uh, which uh, is at that point usually management uh, and or training and education as it relates to the uh, hospitality and, and uh, or food and beverage industry. Okay, so, uh, you know, things that a person uh, could do, you know, that would benefit them along the way uh, would be to, uh, of course, cook uh, as much as you can, whether it's at home or in a professional setting or some other volume setting. Uh, you know, it could be uh, volunteer work at uh, your place of worship, for example. Okay. Uh, this idea of being exposed to food uh, in different settings uh, is uh, very helpful. And uh, this is also true of, of different professional settings. So whether one is, uh, you know, jumping straight into, let's say, fine dining and working their way up from a dishwasher position, uh, or maybe they uh, start off in fast food, uh, move into family dining establishments, uh, and, and work in a myriad of other possible settings, such as um, hospital or other uh, health and wellness settings. Uh, it could be a, a retirement community, uh, which uh, these days are uh, more and more common as places of employment uh, and good places of employment, uh, I, I should say, you know, as the clientele um, uh, are expecting good food. And therefore, those companies, those uh, retirement home uh, campuses uh, are hiring uh, experienced chefs to deliver uh, that, that level of quality that's expected by the clients. Um, you know, one of the advantages of, of culinary school, as, as I just mentioned, is this idea of covering a lot of different topics within a relatively condensed period of time. Okay. Uh, now, uh, keep in mind that if you take that path, uh, that you're going to cover each of these topics fairly quickly, okay, uh, yet it acts as a springboard uh, of sorts uh, to get you into a professional setting where then you can uh, perhaps choose your path in a more fine-tuned way and then apply yourself diligently uh, to develop your skill set and your knowledge base uh, as it pertains to you know, that particular area that you're working in, okay? Uh, there are uh, also formal apprenticeship paths uh, in the United States, for example. Uh, those are uh, fewer um, when compared to other places in the world, uh, but that is going to be a situation where you would uh, work with uh, very often a single uh, uh, place of employment, uh, and spend a perhaps a relatively longer period of time. It could be three or four years, uh, perhaps longer, uh, working through the different stations, the different uh, responsibilities uh, that go into really understanding the different uh, areas of the business uh, in order to, um, to 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 be shaped right and and to be uh, to be prepared uh, to take on the greater managerial responsibilities. Uh, that come with uh, the the opportunity to be a chef, okay? 
Uh, other things that uh, will help along the way will be your own reading and studies. Um, and so if you're not going to school, then just do it on your own time. And even if you finish school, continue doing that on your own time. Uh, you know, read through any sort of resources that might be associated with food. And uh, because food really resides at the, at the center of society, uh, there are um, uh, so many ways that you can connect different topics to food, and whether it's politics or history or um, you know, globalization and, uh, um, you know, again, other, other topics that might come up in, in, your, in your daily discourse or, or daily news feed. Um, all of those potentially have a link to food, okay? And so to be up to date uh, on those issues, uh, is very good. All right. Uh, and then there's travel and, uh, you know, travel locally, travel domestically, travel internationally when you can and expose yourself to uh, people, conversations, eat, drink, taste, prepare food with other people uh, to learn uh, the culture and uh, all of the, those other human aspects that go along with food uh, in a given place. Uh, so that if you choose to bring home some of those ideas and to execute those in your own business, for example, that you understand better the cultural context from which that food came. And uh, you know, keep in mind that uh, food is all about people, right? That might sound obvious, but sometimes we focus so much on food and ingredients and cooking methods that we forget about the human context. And uh, we're talking about the cultural context. And uh, so it's a, it's a good thing to understand that bigger picture uh, as you uh, uh, connect with food and then share food with other people, okay? Uh, and so those are a few things that come to mind. Um, but again, it, it's broad study. And it's um, you know, digging as deep as you can or as, as, as time will permit for a given topic in order to really expand in all directions your understanding of food, all the while you're producing food to develop those different skill sets. Okay, so I hope that gets you started. Those are just a couple of ideas that come to mind. Thank you. All right, uh, we got the next question. Uh, when making a soup that calls for sour cream or heavy cream, what do you substitute that is healthier uh, alternative? And uh, I am a cheese lover. What is uh, palatable cheese? For example, um, let's see, ricotta or cheddar uh, to use as a substitute, for example, in making lasagna, tacos, uh, appies, uh, appetizers. Okay. Um, yes. So... Uh, to, to the first question, okay, regarding sour cream and, and uh, heavy cream, it uh, depends on what you're making. Uh, you know, very often if we're after just some, the introduction of general creaminess, then, you know, very often a, a, a quick go-to uh, is a cashew-based uh, cream sauce or a cashew cream, and it can be made thicker or thinner uh, depending on the application. Um, now, if you want to take a look at some of the commercially produced products, uh, there are many. Uh, for example, sour cream, uh, you know, substitutes come to mind, these plant-based products uh, from companies like Forager, 
Um, and you know, take a look at your your local grocer. Certainly start online and uh, do some reading. You'll find some uh, taste test uh, commentary, and uh, that might be a, a good place to uh, to get a jump start on this uh, this area of food uh, products. Okay. Uh, and then the second part of your question regarding cheese, uh, there are, as you're probably aware, uh, many different producers of plant-based cheeses. And within each company's uh, list of products, there are many to choose from. And those products, at least in my estimation, are hit and miss. Uh, some are more enjoyable texture-wise, some are more enjoyable uh, flavor-wise, uh, some uh, do what you want them to do better uh, when exposed to heat, for example, in terms of meltability. Uh, and it's really kind of trial and error, um, you know, beyond, again, looking at some of the online reviews and, and discussions around some of these products. Okay. Um, another idea that I would suggest is to consider making some of these yourself. Uh, there is a company called... Um, Let's see, Urban Cheese Craft, and they sell DIY cheese kits. Um, when you go to their website, uh, urbancheesecraft.com, uh, note that they've got uh, um, plant-based versions and also non-plant-based versions. So, you know, choose whatever you want and then uh, give it a try. Uh, there's, they have great um, instructions. Uh, and those will explain how you can vary those recipes to make them thinner or more melty or set up more firm and be sliceable, for example. And um, I've had uh, good experience uh, with their plant-based cheese DIY kits and, uh, you know, would uh, suggest that you give that a try. Okay. Thank you. All right. Uh, let's see. Next question. Hello, Melissa. Uh, I was wondering if you have any advice about body posture when working in the kitchen. Uh, my back and shoulders are frequently getting sore now that I'm spending more time cooking. Uh, I purchased uh, cushion mats. Wondering if you have any other tips. Aha. Uh -huh. Uh, the cushion mat, I think, is a great place to start. Uh, it takes a, a lot of that stress um, off of the body and stress uh, that hits the heel travels all the way up to the uh, top of our body. And so that's a good place to start. Um, I will also add that when somebody starts cooking more, uh, it is very common uh, to feel sore. Uh, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one is a, a good reason, and that is that our bodies are simply getting used to the new activity, uh, just as we would need to do if we started playing basketball or playing the flute uh, or any other activity that required a new and um, uh, you know stressful, I'll say, uh, you know, body posture or, or movement. Okay. So uh, that's going to be what we experience on one hand. The, on the other side is uh, many new students uh, are tense, uh, overly tense, uh, meaning that uh, they, they uh, you know, as they focus in, in, intently on the task, they're gripping the knife harder than they have to. 
Uh, and um, it starts, you know, in the hands. It works the, uh, its way up through the shoulders and into the, uh, the neck and back and then through the rest of the body. And so uh, to address this part two issue uh, would be to do your best to um, be cognizant of that and to relax a little bit. Uh, you know, to the extent that, of course, it's still safe and you're still holding onto your knife tightly. Um, but uh, just notice that stress and notice what you can do, uh, you know, in terms of the alleviation of that. OK, just relaxing the arms, the shoulders, the, the neck and the back and, and so forth. OK, um, you know, the other thing is uh, find the position of the feet uh, that are going to be you know, ergonomically good for you. So uh, it's very common that we stagger our feet. For example, I'm right-handed. Uh, I tend to rotate the right side of my body away from the cutting board, which causes my right foot to step back a little bit. Uh, and then I, I find a place on the cutting board that's comfortable for my movement uh, relative to the placement of the food on the cutting board. Okay. And then, uh, you know, also uh, move around. Uh, you know, with some regularity, move those feet. Um, I like to just uh, kind of, uh, uh, you know, use kind of a shock absorber motion uh, through the hips and, and knees, uh, trying to keeping my, my back uh, relatively straight uh, and uh, just being aware of what my body is doing. So that, those are going to be some things to start uh, practicing. And uh, hopefully that'll make your kitchen work, your food work, more comfortable. Thank you. All right, uh, next up from Andre. Uh, I often see plant-based uh, cooks using cast iron skillets. Uh, I was wondering what the advantage is. Also, I was wondering what's the best way to know the temperature of the cast iron skillet um, and if it's okay. Uh, finally, can we use it without oil? Okay, uh, so let's uh, go ahead and start from the first question. And uh, that is, uh, what are the advantages of a cast iron skillet? So uh, let me first say that, uh, you know, whatever cookware you have, learn to use that uh, if you don't want to run out and replace your cookware right away anyway, okay? Um, in other words, uh, in you know, most of our courses, we reference stainless steel cookware, and we have some lessons that are specific uh, to how to use stainless steel cookware, how to heat it, for example. Um, but you can use whatever you want, okay? One of the, I'll say, relative advantages of stainless steel cookware is its uh, ease of maintenance. Um, it, you can bang it around and you can really scrub on it if things get stuck or burnt and it, uh, you know, it'll eventually clean up and uh, look just about like new with a little bit of a patina because after all, you've been doing some cooking. Uh, and so in that sense, stainless steel has some positive attributes, but um, there are many other materials to use. And um, I have cookware made of many, many different materials, so rock and um, glazed and unglazed earthenware and uh, copper, tin line, stainless steel line, stainless steel cookware, cast iron, enameled and not, and, and um, maybe even some other things. But um, uh, it's just a matter of you getting used to using whatever cookware you have or that you want to use, okay, uh, regardless of what is featured uh, in our lessons, 
Okay, so uh, under the advantages of cast iron uh, cookware, um, you know, one is that they hold heat, um, a, a lot of heat. And so you can get some nice even cooking and browning uh, around your food product. Uh, once you put a lid on a cast iron pot or a vessel of some sort, um, it'll, uh, it can act like an oven. Uh, as the lid itself can heat up, provided your, your lid is also cast iron. And you can bake bread in it. You can do all kinds of stuff on the stovetop with, with cast iron cookware. Um, cast iron cookware is also durable. Um, it, uh, it'll last a long time if it's uh, you know, fundamentally cared for, uh, if, it, if it doesn't break um, for, for, for some reason. Uh, it just requires some periodic maintenance uh, you know, in terms of seasoning. Uh, or allowing it to to build up um, the, the the fats and proteins from from food, uh, and then eventually uh, that also helps create a a, a nonstick or a relatively nonstick finish, um, especially on the the, the cooking surface uh, in particular uh, at the bottom of the pan. Okay, and uh, you know in terms of knowing the temperature. Uh, and, and whether it's okay, it's going to take some practice. Okay, so uh, in uh, some of our courses, uh, we feature a, a water ball, or we, we sometimes call it a mercury ball uh, water test uh, to see if a stainless steel pan uh, is heating up. And um, that same test doesn't work so neat and cleanly on other cooking surfaces or in other types of, of pans uh, necessarily. And uh, so when it comes to cast iron, it's gonna be a matter of practice, okay? Uh, to determine uh, the right temperature for adding food or otherwise moving on with your cooking process. And um, the way you wanna test that uh, is very much the same, um, well, uh, I, let me let me loop around here and qualify this. The, the way you want to test that uh, is going to be by feeling the radiant heat, and uh, you know feel it on your hands and your arms, uh, feel it on your face, and uh, you're going to start to uh, gauge uh, on a regular basis, right? What sort of heat is coming off of that, of your particular cookware. That's really important. Okay. You got to get used to using your particular cookware. Um, and then you want to add some, uh, you know, whether it's oil or a food product, whatever type of uh, cooking you're doing, just add, add that to your pot, to your vessel and see how it reacts. Are you hearing a sizzling sound? Is it burning immediately? Uh, is it sitting there and not doing anything? Uh, you know, those are indicators of perhaps the temperature is just right. Maybe the temperature is too hot if it's burning immediately, uh, or if it sits there and does nothing, um, then the pan needs to heat up a little bit longer before you put uh, the food item in the pan, okay? And so there's gonna be some trial and error that will be involved. Okay, and uh, so uh, a similar uh, approach will be necessary with, um, uh, or I should say is desired when using stainless steel cookware as well. So in other words, the idea of using the water ball test on stainless steel uh, is to get you started 
down this path of really engaging with everything that's going on in your realm of cooking, including the heat radiating from your pan. And so when cooking with stainless steel, also uh, you wanna move past uh, using the water bowl test. In other words, you don't wanna use it every time. Use it initially to kind of get an idea of how to gauge pan heat relative to what happens in the pan once you add food. And once you start to, to figure that out through your feel, uh, then you can stop adding water to the pan and just feel it and then move forward. So the same sort of approach applies with other types of cookware. All right. And uh, uh, the, your final question, Andre, about can you use uh, cast iron without oil? The quick answer is yes, provided you've built up some of the, um, the non-stick uh, seasoning layer in the pan. Uh, understand that uh, that might need to be rebuilt uh, over time with some purposeful seasoning, uh, uh, um, rubbing it with oil, bringing it to a high temperature, letting those oils polymerize and, and create a, a tough surface. Okay. Um, and uh, give it a try and uh, just see how your pans act and react to what you put in it. Thank you. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, when cubing irregularly shaped foods, such as carrots, zucchini, and the like, is it anticipated that the less than cubed shapes should be excluded from the dish so as to assure even cooking an enhanced appearance? Aha. So, um, you know, let me answer this uh, in a couple of ways. Let me uh, first put it within the context of our knife skills assignments, okay? Uh, in the knife skills assignments, um, uh, maybe I don't even really need to address this. Just, just do your best. Practice, practice, do your best. And then we'll take a look at, um, uh, you know, the actual cuts that you've made. I, I guess what I want to do is, is sort of qualify those irregular pieces within the context of our assignments by saying that we don't look at the curved, naturally irregular um, edges of the produce that you're cutting for the assignments. Uh, we will look specifically at your cut edges uh, for regularity or irregularity, okay? Uh, now, back to your question. Uh, when it comes to cooking in general, okay, by and large for uh, uh, cooking at home uh, and in most operations, professional operations, uh, you know, like super precise cuts are not necessary. Okay, if we're cutting pieces that um, are roughly equal in size, then that will be fine uh, in terms of the overall evenness of cooking uh, that will be experienced. Okay, um, now if you are, uh, let's say, uh, cutting large dice of whatever, and you have some very small pieces that might be like a julienne or a, a small dice equivalent, um, then it's going to be up to you. Uh, you know, you can certainly elect to pull those aside and save them for some other application. You know, a soup or a, a taco filling or something else where the size may be variable. Okay. Um, now, when it comes to uh, the aesthetic uh, presentation of the food, this is going to be up to you. 
Okay. If you want uh, very precise cuts and, and a sort of a sharp, crisp looking presentation, then you might choose to really fish out uh, some of those irregular pieces. Now, I choose to do that only occasionally when I feel like I'm preparing a special meal for some special occasion, whether it's for my family or for guests. Uh, otherwise, on a daily basis, I'm using everything. And uh, even if I do choose uh, to pull pieces out um, because they don't fit into whatever I'm making uh, due to cooking evenness or the aesthetics, then I will definitely find an outlet to use those trim pieces. Okay. Um, I try to be pretty vigilant about utilizing products. Hopefully that's, uh, that's helpful for you. Thank you. All right. Next question. Uh, do you have a list of food substitutions like for pineapple, mango, papaya, flour, and sugar cane? Uh, please share if you have a cheat sheet substitutions list. It'll be put to good use often. Aha. Uh -huh. So uh, let's talk about substitutions generally. Okay. So uh, first of all, when we make a change to a recipe, uh, we should anticipate different results, right? That's, that's only fair, okay? We change an ingredient. Um, the end result is going to be different. So first of all, prepare yourself for that, okay? Uh, second, as we choose what to use as a substitute, first think about the function of the original ingredient, and then we try to replicate or, or mimic the function or functions of that original product, that original ingredient, okay? So, uh, you know, for example, uh, an ingredient might provide color. It might provide texture, whether it's firm or smooth or sticky or something else. Uh, it could be um, a, a particular taste, right? Flavor combination, uh, maybe aroma that, that could go along with that. Uh, there are other functions such as binding qualities. Some foods are sticky and they adhere to other foods and, and help bind, such as uh, when you make a veggie patty, you want a binder so that your other ingredients all stay together in the form of a patty. And so that's an example of a function of a particular ingredient or two uh, in that particular preparation. So you want to think about uh, also the characteristics of that food. And, um, you know, something could be, uh, again, liquidy, it could be smooth, it could be coarse, it could be very firm, it could be chewy. Uh, and then you want to think about um, uh, how you would replicate or mimic those characteristics uh, with another ingredient. Very often, more than one ingredient is required, okay, to, uh, to uh, provide all those characteristics. You might find that replicating all those characteristics uh, is impractical or impossible, okay? So this is where we are uh, adjusting our expectations uh, of the end product. And therefore what you're making is gonna be something a little bit different, okay? So as I look at your list, uh, pineapple, what's the function? Uh, depends on the application, right? So for example, uh, Pineapple can serve as a source of distinctly pineapple flavor, uh, in which case I don't know how to replicate that. 
Okay, so if I want to bring something else in, I just need to start to replicate the other characteristics of pineapple, uh, such as its uh, relatively firm texture, uh, perhaps its sweetness, uh, and then understand that whatever I make uh, is is uh, not going to be the same. So if it were, you know, a pineapple upside down cake that I started with, um, but I end up using pears, then it's going to be a pear upside down cake, right? And, and so on and so forth. You'll need to change the name of your, your recipe, uh, or at least uh, the description and the name on your menu. Okay. Uh, mango and papaya also, uh, at least in the way that I tend to use those ingredients are pretty distinctive. And um, so if I'm removing mango uh, and I'm bringing in something else, maybe I'm looking for something that's uh, sort of yellow, deep yellow or orange in color. Uh, maybe it's the sweetness. Maybe it's that um, relatively firm uh, texture. Okay. And, uh, you know, again, just think about what it is that might do the trick, whether it's a, um, a, a ripe but still slightly firm peach or a nectarine, um, you know, or, or something else. Uh, we can, we can brainstorm over a cup of tea sometime. Uh, papaya, same thing. Uh, flour and sugar. So flour, if you're talking about uh, avoiding gluten in wheat flour, then there are many substitutions uh, in the world of gluten-free flour blends. And I would recommend that you start uh, with a commercially available blend uh, from a number of different companies. Uh, Bob's Red Mill is one example. Uh, they have a few different uh, gluten-free blends depending on the application, okay, and what it is that you're trying to produce, um, and, and therefore just which qualities you're trying to, to mimic or avoid. Uh, sugar cane, um, well, I guess it depends on what you use a sugar cane for uh, once again, okay? And so just think about its function and what it is, uh, you know, how you might use that. You know, for example, I use um, uh, sugar cane uh, as, as skewers uh, to make seek kebabs. Um, and so it, you know, I can just use something else that looks like a skewer uh, in place of the uh, thin cut pieces of sugar cane. Um, I sometimes use sugarcane as a sweetener uh, in a stew or a soup, uh, in which case I can very easily reach toward another whole food sweetener, uh, such as dates, okay? Uh, and so, you know, use this sort of a filtering approach uh, to figure out what is going to best suit uh, your situation. All right, thank you. All right, uh, next up from Dina. Uh, how does being an ethnographer enhance your culinary skills? Okay, so uh, Dina is referring to, uh, to to some of my background, my my training, some of my professional uh, experience uh, as a food ethnographer. Well, you know, which means that I, I get out and I hang out with people within the context of food, and I observe and record what they do. I'm, I'm trained as a food anthropologist and have taught food anthropology uh, at the university level for, uh, for a number of years. And um, so ethnography is part and parcel of uh, the, the work that I have done in the past. And so, um, you know, this idea of, uh, of practicing ethnography or being an, an ethnographer is one of uh, in, in exposing oneself and hopefully immersing oneself in the culture of 
the given people uh, that you're spending time with. And uh, in the case of food, uh, you know, it's understanding how the food is produced, um, how people think about the food, um, how it's um, combined with other foods at mealtime to, to consume. Um, that, that could be um, on a daily basis. It could be in the context of a special occasion, a, a festival, for example. Um, and uh, again, the, just the, the bigger human context of the food uh, is going to be what you're trying to understand. And um, so um, that certainly informs uh, the way that I cook. Um, you know, if I'm trying to, you know, replicate something from India or Mexico, then I'll do my best to, to do it the way that I observed and uh, that I experienced uh, in those places. Okay. And so uh, it's, you know, it, it's firsthand knowledge of um, what might be called uh, a, a particular type of authenticity uh, that goes around uh, or that, that's part of that food handling. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, next up from Linda. Uh, in task number 14 of the Forks Over Knives course, uh, it says that a more complex mechanism involving primarily fats and carbohydrates in the diet determines the amount of cholesterol in the bloodstream. Uh, I'm a vegan and eat little processed foods. So how do I lower my LDL cholesterol? Uh -huh. So, you know, I think this is an example of a, of a question that really... Um, Kind of reaches into the realm of, of medicine and dietetics. And, um, you know, I would recommend that you consider speaking with your healthcare uh, provider, okay, to uh, look specifically at your situation and to understand that uh, at a little bit deeper. Thank you. All right, uh, Laura, hello. Uh, one wondered your thoughts on air fryer and if it's worth the purchase. Also, what is best way to freeze burgers to avoid freezer burn? Okay. Um, you know, an, an air fryer, you know, I have checked out an air fryer from my local library a couple of times, uh, you know, just to experience it and understand it a little bit better so that I can respond uh, to, to you and, and to other students that have questions about the air fryer. And, um, I mean, is it worth the purchase? Uh, that's going to depend on, you know, I think uh, your space constraints, you know, in your cooking storage areas and also your cooking areas themselves. Um, and also, you know, the, um, the, the type of cooking uh, that you want to experience. Um, a, um, an air fryer, uh, is one of these multi-cooking appliances, uh, just like a, um, uh, an electric or electronic pressure cooker is, uh, you know, like an instant pot as a, as a brand name. And uh, these are all uh, very good. Um, but um, again, it, it depends on whether, you know, you want to tinker with an oven or a grill and uh, you know, th there's a certain experience uh, that goes along with uh, um, cooking in those other ways, using those other modalities, different types of equipment, uh, you know, versus an air fryer. I don't think there's anything wrong with an air fryer. I found that it produced very nice food. Um, you know, I just found that at, at home, I already had a pan, I already had some oil, I already had an oven. 
Um, and so I, I didn't feel like I needed to, to purchase an air fryer. Um, I, I was imagining small spaces such as maybe you know, whatever the situation is, but maybe a smaller space where, um, uh, you know, storage was, was limited or my cooking space was limited where something like a, an air fryer uh, coupled with uh, an electric pressure cooker and, and maybe something else like a, maybe just a cutting board and a chef's knife would be perfect uh, for 99% of, of the meals that I wanted to cook. Um, so, you know, I would say, um, you know, think about it. Um, if you have a chance, uh, to, to borrow or, to, you know, to use, uh, before purchasing, uh, an air fryer, uh, please do that to see how it fits into, uh, you know, your aesthetics and all those other things that come along with cooking. All right. Uh, you know, regarding, uh, storing, uh, burgers to avoid freezer burn, you know, the, the general recommendation for any food, including burgers, uh, is to wrap them tightly uh, and uh, very often, um, you know, in multiple layers of wrap. Certainly the, the, the goal is to create an airtight uh, environment around that food item, okay, in order to slow down uh, the, the freezer burn, which is a drying process. Okay. The freezers and refrigerators as well tend to do that, but the freezer burn of course is a, a freezer issue. Uh, the other side, uh, of the suggestion here is to say, um, you know, enjoy the food sooner than later, uh, before freezer burn has a chance to set in. And I think that's very important. Uh, as we think about sticking something in the freezer, label it uh, with, of course, the name of the food item, but also the date uh, on which you are freezing it, and then try to use it, you know, within, say, three months or so um, before it gets too old. All right. That's, uh, you know, when it comes to food storage, what we're really at that point, what we're doing is we're, we're trying to enhance old food. And so rather than letting the food get too old, just enjoy it in a younger, fresher state. All right. Thank you. All right. Uh, next question. Uh, what's the difference between and when to use each uh, meal, starch, and flour? For example, uh, corn flour, corn meal, corn starch. Okay. Uh, these three examples, Donna, that you, you've presented, corn flour, corn meal, corn starch, um, are typically different in texture. Uh, in other words, the, uh, the fineness of the grind uh, between, let's see, the, um, the first two uh, uh, in particular. And then the last one, corn starch, is usually um, uh, uh, taking out uh, the starch starchy component uh, of the grain or whatever it is that we're, we're working with. Okay, so it's, it's going to be a more refined product. So uh, corn starch uh, very commonly is used uh, as, to make a slurry where you mix it with a cold liquid and add it to another liquid to thicken um, that liquid, the soup or a, a stew or a sauce, for example. Um, Starches uh, can also be used as a binder because they um, are uh, they can be sticky. It also depends on the type of starch that we're using. Okay, uh, you know, corn flour. Um, 
let's see, you know, could be used uh, where other flours are used. So you can, if you want to introduce that to a gluten-free blend, you know, that's an example. Uh, and then that can go into making bread or something else. Uh, Cornmeal is often a little bit more coarse. Uh, and I associate that, uh, at least in, in my typical repertoire of cooking, with some specific preparations, whether it's polenta or uh, something in that realm where, um, you know, I want uh, um, uh, a, a slightly more coarse texture right in that, that final product that I'm, I'm making as I'm cooking that with a liquid, a flavorful liquid or other ingredients. Okay. Um, so I think, you know, as, as you sort of expand your, your uh, understanding of the application of these different degrees of processing or, or different components of a given food, such as corn in this case, read uh, recipes and see how it's being used. Look at the function uh, of that item, that ingredient in the recipe. And then of course, look at the end product uh, to see what's being made. Okay. And I think, uh, you know, with uh, a few of these sort of experiences, you will uh, quickly understand uh, what some of the uh, differentiating factors uh, could be. And then also where some of the overlap might be uh, when using these products. All right. Thank you. All right. Marion is asking, I would like to have a Ruby logo on a chef's jacket if that is acceptable. Uh, where might I find a digital file uh, I, I can send to a company that personalizes jackets? Um, let's see. Just above your question, Marion, uh, looks like we've got, um, or just below your question now, uh, is a, a couple of links to some of the coat options that we have that already have a small uh, Ruby logo attached to them. Uh, as far as a, 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 a digital file goes, um, I'll need to ponder that and, and uh, see what the best path forward would be. Perhaps, uh, Marion, you can reach out to me at support at ruby.com uh, so that I've got your contact information as well. And then I can, uh, you know, we can have a more personalized discussion. Thank you. And let's see, next one, uh, Pilar, uh, good day. Welcome. Uh, how do you prevent sweet potatoes from turning blackish after you peel them? Aha. Uh -huh. So I will put them in water. And, um, you know, I associate that, uh, uh, you know, with enzymatic browning, um, which we experience with a lot of different foods uh, in different degrees, uh, you know, whether it's an apple or a, a russet potato, or in this case, a sweet potato. And um, so, um, uh Contact with air, with oxygen, right, promotes the uh, this, this oxidation. And so to uh, um, slow down the contact with oxygen is what we're after here. So uh, putting a, f uh, a food in water uh, will help. And, you know, potatoes can even be stored in water if, if you want, if you need to. And uh, also salt uh, can help slow that process down. Um, so, you know, salt water, if you choose to, it's totally optional, uh, but that, uh, you know, is uh, a choice as well. Okay, so give that a try 
and uh, see if that helps. Thank you. And uh, Sabrina uh, writes, uh, palm oil, uh, coconut oil, and margarine raise cholesterol. Okay, yes, thank you. Thank you for, for sharing that. And uh, yeah, you know, um, you know, these sort of uh, foods come up in so many different contexts of cooking, uh, whether it's animal-based cooking, whether it's plant-based cooking, and, and uh, many regional cuisines around the world. And, um, uh, you know, I think that uh, as we think about cholesterol and uh, Certainly, if someone has uh, an immediate concern relative to their own cholesterol levels, then uh, you know, limiting or omitting uh, these added fats uh, may be helpful. Thank you. And NJ asks, are lectins unhealthy? And so this is an interesting question. And um, there's certainly a, a lot of information out there that can talk about the nuances of, of handling lectins and where they're found and in what quantities. And I mean, the, you know, the, the, the quick uh, response here would be that, yes, I mean, lectins in and of themselves um, uh, at, at certain levels of consumption uh, can be unhealthy and they affect people in different ways because we're, our metabolisms are a lot, all a little bit different. Okay. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the good news is that, um, lectin levels are decreased significantly with thorough cooking. So for example, foods that are relatively high in lectin, such as certain legumes and grains, uh, those levels uh, decrease significantly when those items are fully cooked. And uh, another way of saying that is properly cooked. Uh, I mean, after all, uh, you know, who enjoys undercooked beans? Uh, and that's where, you know, some of the, uh, the concern can lie for some consumers. Uh, so, uh, but otherwise, lectins are pretty common in both plant foods and animal foods. And again, uh, levels or quantities vary in so many foods. Okay. But again, cooking uh, can alleviate um, the concern for probably most people most of the time. All right. But uh, take a look at the interwebs and do some reading on the topic and uh, you'll learn much, much more about it. Thank you. All right, and the next question. Uh, thank you for addressing the gluten-free flours. Um, as I have uh, trouble with substituting gluten flours or products when I'm trying to cook whole food plant-based uh, in the FOK context, uh, is this a trial and error thing because my substitutions turn out really nasty sometimes? Um, well, uh, yeah, I think I would need to have a little bit more context on the nastiness of your results, Janie. But, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, these companies that produce uh, gluten-free blends will often have more than one. And, uh, you know, one that might be suitable for uh, breads, one might, that might be a little bit better for pizza dough, uh, one might, uh, that might be suitable for the lower gluten um, that's typical of pastries uh, and so on and so forth. Um, and this is where, uh, yes, some trial and error, I think on your part, uh, would be necessary to find, uh, the blend that you like best. Okay. Um, uh, gluten-free blends are going to have multiple, uh, ingredients in them. 
and uh, there, there might be four or five or six or seven or eight, you know, ingredients, for example, um, where, you know, each of those ingredients is trying to mimic uh, the, the stickiness, right, that binding quality uh, that we associate with gluten, uh, perhaps uh, protein content, if you want to look at the, uh, the resulting food from a nutrition standpoint. Uh, there's aroma, flavor, and texture qualities that are, that are being balanced as well. And so hence the, uh, the need to blend a number of different uh, flours or ingredients to make a particular uh, gluten-free blend, okay? Um, you know, keep in mind also that different brands uh, will have different blends. I mean, even if the ingredients are the same, the ratios might be a little bit different. And so this, again... Uh, calls for some experimentation uh, on your part to find one that is uh, going to be most enjoyable, right, for, for you. Um, you know, even if, um, you know, arguably they function like these two brands, let's say that we're comparing, uh, function um, adequately or similarly, uh, there might be something a little bit different about uh, some of the other characteristics um, that uh, you may or may not like. Okay, um, let's see. Anything else that I can add here? Uh, yeah, start with start with commercial products. Those tend to be tested, uh, and then go from there. Okay, uh, meaning that if you want to design your own, uh, you you will develop some understanding of different ingredients over time. Okay, thank you. All right, next question: Can I receive graduate credit hours when I finish the FOK course? Um, you know, the quick answer is probably not. Uh, the FOK course uh, earns some continuing education hours through the American Culinary Federation. And that number, uh, the last I checked, was 63 CEHs. Um, but the FOK course uh, is not linked to college credit, uh, you know, through, you know, our uh, accrediting body, which is ACE. Okay. Uh, so the quick answer would be no, um, unless of course you can swing something with, uh, the receiving institution at your end. Thank you. All right. Uh, next question, uh, a question on the quiz was about marinades and that they should be cooked. Uh, cooked to me means that they would be hot when added to food. Is that correct? Also, uh, can you please explain why you would use a marinade that doesn't contain an acidic component? Uh, so the first part of your question uh, has to do with cooking a marinade. And um, so if a marinade is cooked uh, in order to draw out more flavors from some of the ingredients, uh, then it will typically be cooled uh, before it is applied to the food to be marinated. Okay. Uh, and then the second part of your question, uh, why would you use a marinade that doesn't contain an acidic component? So the, the traditional marinade, okay, comes uh, uh, right, most typically from the world of, of meat handling. And the acidic component uh, has the function of um, tenderizing to some degree uh, the meat. And um, so if you have an item that doesn't particularly need to be tenderized uh, from the standpoint of the acid, 
then you can omit the acidic component and, and focus on the flavorful components uh, of the marinade. All right, thank you. And let's see, next up, Kathleen is asking, will you be sending a suggested itinerary for coursework and classes for Forks Over Knives? Aha. Uh -huh. So uh, when you enroll uh, in the Forks Over Knives course, um, uh, you will be presented with a, uh, a syllabus. And uh, that's one of the first things that you will see uh, and it's certainly it's accessible uh, from your dashboard. And um, uh, that sequence, right, is our suggested sequence that you follow. So in other words, uh, we have built the course as well as our other courses uh, in a particular sequence that we feel makes sense uh, to your skill development, okay? And so if you follow that suggested um uh, sequence, then you're going to be uh, doing very well. Now, in terms of, of an itinerary, okay, which suggests timing, uh, know that the Forks Over Knives course has a 90-day limit, right, after which uh, you have the option of purchasing an extension, okay? Um, but in, uh, you know, in order to stay uh, on that 90-day um, completion schedule, uh, just take a look at uh, the percentage of the course completed, uh, which you can see uh, when you log into your course, and then take a look at how far along the 90-day window uh, you are, all right? So if you're a month into the program and you're you know, 30 or 35% done with the course, then you're pretty much uh, on pace to finishing on time. Um, you know, if you're only 12% done, then maybe you should put in some more time and get, uh, get you know, sort of on schedule to ensure that you can finish within uh, the 90-day limit uh, if that's important for you. All right. Thank you. And uh, next question. Hello, Angela. Uh, I would appreciate your awesome advice on how to best wash Italian parsley since it has lots of crevices where soil can stick. Sand and soil uh, is not an ingredient I wish to impart in my dishes. Yuck. Uh, so, uh, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, rinsing herbs uh, generally, uh, you know, feel free to uh, put those in a bowl of water and especially something like Italian parsley, which is pretty hardy. Uh, you can, you know, sort of do a, a light sort of a, a rub back and forth between your hands uh, in order to introduce, you know, some, um, some scrubbing action uh, to remove some of that fine particulate that tends to adhere to the leaves, right, that you're referring to. And uh, this can be true of uh, some other herbs as well, um, but that's something that works for me, okay? And then, uh, you know, from there, if you... Uh, have a salad spinner. Uh, you can easily dry off the herbs. Again, depends on what you're using it for, whether you want to do that or not. Uh, or you can um, grab that bunch and just uh, kind of whack it against the edge of the sink to uh, release some of that water. And uh, you know that can be very effective as well. And then uh, uh, see if that, uh, that suits your requirement, okay, your expectation. Thank you. 
Okay, uh, Bernadette uh, is asking, what's the best way to chop walnuts to use in baking? So Bernadette, uh, you know, usually what I will do is uh, simply lay them out uh, on a cutting board, um, you know, sort of basically in a single layer. Uh, and, you know, they're generally flat in profile, so they sit very nicely on the cutting board. And then with a chef's knife, I will go back and forth and then from top to bottom or, you know, at an angle across the cutting board, uh, cutting those uh, walnuts into smaller and smaller pieces. And then, uh, you know, if uh, the overall bunch gets down to, let's say, uh, maybe two thirds of it being about where I want it, then I'll try to pull aside the remaining large pieces and then just work on those separately. Uh, <clears throat> to even up uh, the overall um, cuts across that batch of walnuts, okay? Now, when it comes to um, walnuts, uh, you know, as well as some uh, other nuts, there are nut choppers. And uh, the one that I will use once in a while is a manual chopper. And it's a, it's just, it's a small glass vessel with a screw top. Uh, that has this little cranking mechanism with these tines that sort of go around in a circle and it'll pull the, the nuts through and, and sort of crush them as they push the smaller pieces down into the container below, the, the reservoir down below. And uh, I will use that with some applications. Um, you, you can find those online uh, if that's something you might want to check out. All right. Thank you. Uh, excuse me just a second here, Louie, as I get a, a drink. Okay, uh, Louie, good to see you. Hope you've been well. Uh, for the final course assessment, what is the best uh, strategic way to comprehend and memorize a lot of the information in the plant-based course so I can uh, pass with a great grade. Okay, so um, what I like to do, and therefore what I recommend for my students, is uh, you know number one when it comes to the the uh, cooking methods, and then the those allied techniques uh, of food handling, uh, is to practice uh, so that it be you know those physical. Um, actions become part of who you are. And, uh, you know, you, you have to think less at that time because they, they more naturally sort of come forth. And um, so practice goes a long way uh, in understanding a, a, a component uh, of that uh, final exam that you're referring to. And then there's other theoretical information and just, you know, some of the knowledge that uh, you need to um, hang on to, or at least we want you to hang on to. And that's where I use flashcards. Um, I um, have had a lot of uh, uh, luck, uh, or I should say good results, not luck. It, it's just good results um, for me personally, as well as every student of mine ever, uh, when we've used flashcards. Now, the only students that I've met that have not had good results with flashcards are those students that didn't use the flashcards. 
And it might sound funny, but it's, it's happened a number of times. So uh, make flashcards um, to understand vocabulary, to uh, understand um, concepts and uh, the, the framework or the outline of a cooking method, right? You might start with a flashcard uh, to help uh, uh, solidify or crystallize your understanding and knowledge, okay, of that process. Uh, but those are the two methods uh, that I recommend, okay? So flashcards and uh, put them in your back pocket. Pull them out wherever you are. If you're, you know, on the bus, if you're waiting for somebody, if you have five minutes to spare um, during commercials, if you're watching a football game, uh, pull out your flashcards and practice. And then also get in the kitchen and practice, 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 all the while thinking, really engaging with what it is that you're doing in order uh, for that skill set and that information to uh, make its way deeper into your DNA, so to speak. And it just makes it easier to remember. Okay, thank you. All right, uh, the next question uh, from Kathleen. Uh, how do you feel about DIY vegetable broth powder all-purpose seasoning? Uh, I have a recipe using garlic powder, marjoram, parsley, flakes, sage, savory, thyme, celery salt, pepper, salt, and turmeric. Um, you know, I think these uh, sort of DIY um, blends are fantastic. You know, in fact, um, you know, we have such recipes uh, in some of our courses, and uh, some of them focus on um, the equivalent of a broth, you know, as you're suggesting here. Uh, and some of them are, uh, they, they mimic regional flavors, whether it's something from the Middle East or, or somewhere else. Um, but uh, you have a chance to make these. And, um, you know, number one, you know it goes into these blends. So you have some control and, and uh, knowledge and some assurance of quality. Uh, you can also uh, change the ratio of the ingredients to better suit your palate uh, or the type of uh, foods that you produce. Okay, so you can have your custom blends. Um, but these sorts of products, uh, I think, are great. And, um, you know, the, uh, what you've suggested here, uh, garlic and, you know, turmeric and all these sort of things, uh, provide great flavor and, uh, aroma potential, um, you know, which add up to a satisfying dish. Uh, so, um, you know, give it a try and uh, feel free to make adjustments, of course, to the uh, ratios or the quantities of certain ingredients. Uh, to achieve your desired results. All right, thank you. All right, uh, hello, Cherie. Uh, I just wanted to say how impressed I am with the amazing credentials and experiences uh, all the chefs list uh, in their bios. Uh, it is an honor to learn from all of you. I am having a great time learning. Uh, yeah, thank you very much, Cherie, for your feedback. Um, you know, indeed, I've got uh, wonderful colleagues uh, here at Ruby. And, um, in, you know, as I mentioned earlier in today's program, uh, the, the, the path to becoming a chef, uh, it, you know, when it comes to my colleagues that are on the instructional team, we've all taken unique paths uh, to get to where we are. Um, which, you know, only adds, I think, to the value that you receive, um, you know, in the courses themselves or whether it's through the feedback uh, that you receive from each one of us. OK. And um, so, uh, you know, thank you uh, for your feedback 
And uh, it's so good to know that you're enjoying your experience. Thanks. Uh, and Jamie uh, is asking, uh, once completed, can I use this certificate to provide meal preps to, to clients? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the quick answer is yes. You know, uh, when it comes to uh, providing, um, you know, prepared or partially prepared, you know, meals to, to clients, um, then you get to shape your story, right, um, in terms of marketing. Uh, and, uh, you know, you get to um, uh, reach out and um, uh, bring those credentials in, uh, to, you know, to your uh, resume or your, your CV. And, um, you know, certainly um, a certificate of completion that you receive from Ruby for any of our courses or for multiple courses, um, you know, that this, this is one way of doing that. And uh, it will, uh, you know, certainly uh, contribute to your bona fides uh, as you uh, interact with your clients. All right. Thank you. Uh, and then it looks like we've got, uh, you know, one more question here from Joseph. Um, I'm approaching the end of my course uh, in the Forks Over Knives three-month course. How long will I have access to the course material after completion? Uh, so the quick uh, answer here, Joseph, is that you have access to the course content for life, okay? Um, the, uh, the quizzes uh, will be locked, and your access uh, to the Q&A function um, uh, will be locked, um, but uh, you have access to the course content uh, forever. And this is going to be true of all of our other courses as well. And uh, also, you know, know that you can always join us for our live events, uh, whether it's uh, at open office hours, uh, like today's uh, event, or uh, our uh, topic-specific live events, okay? And so I hope to see you in the future. Thanks a lot for your question, Joseph. And thank you, uh, everyone else, for your participation today. Uh, we've had uh, a wonderful set of questions to, uh, to, to discuss, and I hope uh, you're walking away with a little bit more understanding um, of the food handling and cooking process. And um, I'll be back, and I hope you will too. Uh, until then, happy cooking.